Hello, and welcome to the Collider Podcast. I'm Collider Senior Editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is Managing Editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today, we were talking about what will movies look like when they come back. We are, we are getting there. We're getting close to the time when movies will return. Godzilla vs. Kong had by far the biggest box office of any movie since the pandemic started. Uh, now, was it a regular size box office for a film of that magnitude? No, but it was also released on HBO Max. So what does that and tell And its worldwide gross, worldwide gross is actually not far off from Godzilla King of the Monsters, which I think that says more about Godzilla King of yeah, the Monsters. Yeah, I think that says more about Godzilla King of the Monsters. But I think that says that people are sort of inching back towards theaters. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised, honestly, if, Mortal Kombat, which opens on April 23rd, if that has a bigger box office take than Godzilla versus Kong, because more people will be yeah. vaccinated, more mm-hmm. people will want to get back to the theater. But you do now have these splits where I think it definitely led to a lot of hand wringing at the beginning of the pandemic, where there was already tension between the studios and the theater chains over release windows. And that sort of standoff had been at essentially 90 days where studios wanted movies out of theaters sooner. Theaters wanted them longer. They certainly didn't want to cut into their window that they already had because of the way they made money on, you know, the, basically the way it works broadly is that theaters would make more money the longer a movie stayed in their, in theaters. Um, you get more from the second weekend than the first, more from the third weekend than the second, so on. If you cut out the release window, that damages their uh, revenue. And then the pandemic hit, theaters closed down and studios are still making movies. They still have movies to release. What happens? And so you, first off, you saw movies just going straight to this premium video on demand thing, which is something Universal wanted to do way back. Got, what, did Tower Heist open in what, 2012, 2009? <laughs> I, think was, I think it was 2011. 2011. Yeah. But basically at that time, Universal was like, what we want to do is like abbreviate the release window to where there you pay like $50 and you can get tower, you can rent tower heist. And eventually that, you know, what they came out with during the pandemic, it's $20. You pay $20 and you get a, you know, 48 hour window to watch the newest movies. And so that's been continuing as theaters have been closed. And then Warner brothers really shook things up with this, hybrid strategy where they would release their 2021 slate both in theaters and on HBO Max. And we covered that in a previous episode. And now what you're sort of coming to is you have so far Warner Brothers saying, well, our, our this hybrid strategy is only for 2021. We haven't decided anything beyond that. But you have other chains and other other theater, I'm sorry, other studios like Universal creating deals with uh, Cinemark and Regal saying, okay, well, we'll give you a movie for 17 days. And then it goes to, I guess, is it a PVOD strategy right now? Or is it Universal wants to send it to Peacock? Uh, I think it's PVOD. Yeah, it's not Peacock. It's okay. pay. So it's like Trolls World Tour didn't go straight to Peacock. So Right. Well, yeah. but like Paramount is doing 45 days. Paramount yes. has cut the release window in half where they're saying, you know, you'll get your movie in theaters for 45 days, you know, like six weeks, and then it goes to Paramount Plus. So something like Top Gun 2, 
will be in theaters for six weeks. And then well, Top Gun 2 actually is, is that a, is, is that not, but not Mission Impossible is. So okay. initially, when I first read the report, I was like, oh my God, both of these Tom Cruise movies. But then they clarified that it was only select titles, which meant most of them, but not, they said Top Gun Maverick would not be going on. Okay. Okay. For whatever. So there must be some kind of deal with Jerry Bruckheimer or whatever that it right. like, cannot yeah. go straight to streaming or whatever. Um, it's a, it's a, a Quiet Place Part 2, though, I think is under that yeah. deal. Yeah. yeah so, so that will be on on May Paramount 28th. Plus. That hits. Yeah. May 28th is when a quiet place part two hits theaters, but then six weeks later, it'll be available on Paramount plus. So what does this all mean? What does this mean? Does it mean for theaters? What does it mean for streaming? Are, is this going to, you know, kill the theatrical experience? And I've, you know, if you listen to this show, you know, that Adam and I are both sort of on the side that theaters will persevere in the same way that we believe that, you know, DoorDash doesn't kill, the desire to go to restaurants that they're essentially offering different experiences and that while you can watch a movie at home and you can stream a film you there's something to be said for the communal experience of going to the movies and and making a night of it and like you want that experience um although you know and i say those things now because i've had a year off from like trying to tell people to turn off their phones in the middle of a movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, all, how, see how long that lasts. See how long that lasts. Oh, oh. screw it. Everyone just, yeah, if you're going to treat it like your living room, just stay home, whatever. Uh, but no, I feel like, honestly, if theater chains want to make the case for themselves, they need to make the theater going experience better than just being letting people pretend like they're at home. Um, but I will say, so with this new strategy, is this sort of the end of... of you know, what happens to the smaller release films? What does this do to blockbusters? What is, you know, will people, if I tell you, you know, this movie's coming to theaters, but if you have a Paramount Plus subscription, you can just wait six weeks and watch it at home. What does that do for box office? And I don't think we've really found that answer yet. Yeah, I mean, Godzilla versus Kong had the biggest box office of the entire pandemic, which is unsurprising for two reasons. One, a lot of people are vaccinated right now. Um, and so- Well, a lot is like 19% of the country. Which is sure, still like, but like way more in than there terms was. Of, it's no longer like just go out and gamble. Like right. there are people who are fully vaccinated and they're like, you know what? I'm a nurse. I'm fully vaccinated. I have been. I want to go out. I want to do something cool. I'm going to go to a movie. Right. And now there is finally a big movie out. Uh, I think the other reason is that Godzilla versus Kong is like just so easy to sell to anyone to watch. It's just two monsters fighting. That's it. Yeah. And it's, it, it's supposed to like big monsters should be on a big screen. It's pretty easy yeah. to understand. Yeah. So, you know, had it opened in like a normal corridor, I think it still would have done pretty well. But you look at Godzilla King of the Monsters, like that movie came out in the glut of another summer where there were a bunch of other choices, a bunch of other blockbusters to choose from. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious because of that HBO Max thing, because, you know, everyone criticized Warner Brothers when they first came out with that deal that they were going to put everything on HBO Max for 31 days for all of 2021. And I was one of the people I didn't love it. Um, but they have been the ones who like eh, over the last few months, their films have been the ones that have cut through the noise. Judas and the Black Messiah is, uh, I just saw a study the other day of like awareness for the Oscar best picture nominees, which is at an all time low, which is not surprising, but the one that had the most awareness was Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, and then you have the Snyder cut, which is not, you know, a theatrically released feature film that's an HBO max original, but that created a, like a wealth of buzz, uh, around it. I think Mortal Kombat is going to do pretty well. Um, so I think the next big test case will be A Quiet Place Part 2, which I think 
brilliant decision to put it there at the end of May. I think a lot more people are going to be fully vaccinated by that time. Um, it looks like they, they just announced today that all states will be directed to open up vaccine eligibility to uh, everyone um, in this month, like within the next like two weeks. Um, and I think a horror movie is something people love to go back to theaters to see. So I think that's going to do really well. I will be curious to see how the HBO max releases are doing this summer. And also there's going to be like a novelty, um, aspect to it of like going to a movie is a unique thing now because we didn't do it for a year. So I think there's going to be a lot of people that have HBO max that will choose to see it in theaters, um, because they can. Um, but I'll be curious to see how long that lasts. Like if, when we hit like August for like the suicide squad, will people still be like, you know what? No, I'm going to go see suicide squad in a theater Friday night instead of watching it on HBO max this morning when I wake up. Um, I think that's a big question still to be unanswered, but you know, the big takeaway here is that that theatrical window is, is broken. We will no longer see that, that three month window universal struck a deal with Cinemark last November that says it guarantees that each um, Universal Pictures and Focus Features film uh, will be exclusively in theaters for 17 days. But after 17 days, the studio has an option to make those movies available on PVOD, meaning you could rent it for 20 bucks or whatever. Um, but if a movie opens to 50 million or more at the box office, then it stays in theaters for 31 days instead of 17 days. So Universal did this deal, and I'm curious to see if any other studios do that, where they're essentially saying, like, if our movie makes a lot of money opening weekend, you have to wait longer to put it on streaming or PVOD. Um, Which makes sense because, you know, Universal, yeah, they have smaller films, but they also have the Fast and Furious franchise. Yeah. You don't want to just get Fast and Furious out of theaters in 17 days. Yeah, you don't want to cut its legs off in 17 days. And, and I also feel like, you know, Universal is not sending their stuff to Peacock. It's PVOD. So if I have the option of paying $20 to watch F9 at home or paying $20 to go see it in a theater, I'm going to go see it in a theater. I mean, obviously ticket prices vary depending on where you live. Um, so it might be a little more expensive to see it in a theater. It might be cheaper to see it in a theater. But you're also getting the benefit. Like that's a movie that you want to see with a crowd. because Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And you're paying that's for offering. the experience. Like you're going out for the night. Right. You're going to a theater. You're going to get some popcorn. Like you're having a whole experience with it. So yeah. to me, that's part, part and parcel of the price there especially after a year of just sitting on my couch, watching everything <laughs> going like, Oh yeah, that was good. Or, Oh, that was fine. I also feel like one of the reasons Warner brothers has been so successful with their HBO max plan is that it's very simple to understand. Yeah. It's very like we have a 2021 slate. That's all the, the movies that we had planned for 2021, every single one of them. And it's 31 days on HBO max. And then it goes away. Uh, but it's also, you can see it in theaters, you can see it on HBO Max. And I feel like that makes it very easy to sort of, you know, to sort of get the culture sort of on board with it in a way, because it's so easy to understand. Whereas I think other studios are, are struggling a bit because they're trying to sort of hedge. Yeah. And I think Universal is like, they're hedging a little bit with their sort of 17 days, but if more, more than 50 million, then 30 days, then, you know, and so on and so forth. And I think you can definitely see that with, with Disney. I think yeah. Disney is trying to sort of have it both ways on Disney plus where they're like, well, some of the movie, like we'll, we'll release soul for everyone. Soul will just be on Disney plus. And people like talked about soul when it came out in December mm -hmm. and like, it makes sense. It's a Pixar films. So it was around the holidays. It's, it was a good film. It's probably going to win best animated feature at the Oscars, but is anyone really talking about Rhea and the Last Dragon? 
Yeah. And I don't think that's a reflection on the film itself. I liked Rhea in The Last Dragon. I wish I had seen it in the theater, but regardless, it has it's under the premium access lock. So you have to pay $30 to add it to your Disney Plus, or you just wait until it naturally becomes part of Disney Plus yeah. in like a few months. And I don't know for a film like Raya, if people are like, yeah, I have to see Raya and The Last Dragon right now. Even Mulan, like that was their big test balloon. Mm -hmm. And that was a big blockbuster. And that was December. And as far as I can tell, nobody bought it. (laughs) Nobody paid the premium to watch Mulan. No one paid the premium. And I really think, you know, honestly, I, I can't help but wonder if Disney sort of, you know, they're look right now, the next big premium release is Black Widow, which mm-hmm. is theaters and Disney plus premium access on July 9th. And I can't help but wonder if, if people are really headed back to theaters in May and June, if Disney's like, you know what, we're going to not pull, we're not going to waste this. We're not going to split it. People are back in theaters now. Let's just put Black Widow solely in theaters. Yeah. Whereas to like- me- Yo, go ahead. Or, and maybe I have this wrong. I can't remember if Cruella is premium access or, or just on Disney Plus. Because that's um, supposed to be May 28th. Let me look that up right now. Um, but I do think it's I think it's fascinating. And I think the decision to put um uh Black Widow in that premium. Um oh yeah, Cruella is also premium. Okay. See, and I don't think people will pay the premium for Cruella. I don't, I don't think, think they so will. too. And the part of, like so the only way I can rationalize Disney doing that premium for Black Widow so late in the year, um, I say late in the year, but like July, like a lot, like that should be people should will be, be back. Over the, we, we should be, be over the fifty percent mark of like population vaccinated yes. by July. That's over half the population. I think that that is a top down thing. That that is a uh, you know Disney executives looking at Disney Plus as the future of their company. And saying, all right, this is the biggest test balloon we could possibly do. Mm. Theaters and premium access, same day. What do you want? You consumers tell us. And have the consumers tell them which which one is their like preferable way to watch it or which one will make the most money. Because that is, I mean, 30 bucks is a is a fairly steep charge. I think, you know, a ton of people will go out and see Black Widow in theaters. I can't think of many who will pay 30 bucks just to watch it on their TV. I do like that it's available. I mean, accessibility is another issue that we haven't talked about a ton, but there are people who are just physically unable to go to movie theaters. And so mm-hmm. I think um, I think deals like this are very beneficial to them. So I think that having that choice there um, is great. I am just, I don't know. I just, it seems so weird to me that they went ahead and went with that pre premiere access because the reports were all saying that Feige really wanted theaters only. And it was JPEG and uh, the Disney executives who were really pushing for a Disney Plus launch. Um, because to them, the future of their company is that streaming service. Their their primary goal right now is turning Disney Plus into something as big as Netflix. Because that's where that's where they see the the how they can, you know, they they own those subscribers, they can market to those subscribers everything else that is Disney, you know, theme parks, uh, spin-offs, TV shows, movies, everything else can go on there. But um, I don't know that uh, that's going to be a really curious test case. And I I'll be curious to see if you're right, because I would I would not be entirely shocked if they pulled back on the premiere access thing or said, like, it'll be a week in theaters and a week later we'll put it on premiere access. Yeah, I mean, it's 
it's, it's a true. tricky thing. And, and I again, also don't know anyone who's going to watch Cruella on Premiere Access. Like up and like up through now, it feels like Premiere Access is just another dumping ground. The same and as it the, has been. It's the same as Disney and, Plus has been for their original films because the original films on Disney Plus are not good. It's like Noel and like Godmother, like stuff that people. How dare just, you? Mm. How dare you, sir, speak ill of Artemis Fowl? <laughs> Artemis Fowl, yes. Yeah. Uh, so far, like everything they're telling us is that any any original movie that's going on Disney Plus is not worth your is not right, worth right. exactly. Money. They're not they're trying to have it both ways where it's like, well, we're having a theatrical strategy, but don't look and and look, there are some good originals on Disney Plus, like um, oh gosh, the one with uh, oh Timmy Failure, that was a good one. I heard Star Girl was good, and I heard Star Girl was good. Uh, Togo is good, but these are like it, you know, in a weird way, it makes sense for Disney plus to sort of be like these smaller movies that like, yeah, no, they, they wouldn't perform in theaters anyway, because they are smaller. Um, they're telling smaller stories. And so people would not be as inclined to go to the theater to see like Timmy failure. I think there's an, a case to be made there, but if you're saying like, well, these are, you know, if you're using it as a dumping ground for stuff like Artemis Fowl, then you're diminishing the brand. Then it just says, "Here's the not good enough for primetime players." Yeah, yeah. So that that's what I'm curious about. It. I mean, and Cruella is a pretty. I don't know. I thought Mulan was a pretty prestige choice, but uh, I suppose Cruella is a very prestige choice because that's got the star power of Emma Stone. Mm-hmm. And they're making like a lot of the live action remakes now that they're making are are being made exclusively for Disney Plus. So like Peter Pan and Wendy. Um, it's Pinocchio. Pinocchio is, and that's Robert Zemeckis and Tom Hanks. Like that's a big deal. So maybe they see the problem and they're trying to fix it. I don't know, but it's I mean, it's very it's very crossed wires right now in terms of like what is the what is the message you're trying to tell? right? Well, it's extremely. Also, I would I would argue that with any streaming service, your your bread and butter is not going to be movies. No, and that may seem like a weird thing to say, like what Netflix has movies, like they make original movies. But the issue with a movie is you watch it and it's done. Now Netflix's solution has been to just flood the zone with movies. So many movies that you cannot possibly keep up with them, and Netflix doesn't care that you can't keep up with them. It just wants to have the most of anything, and it will go deep into debt to just try to disrupt to the market. Yeah. So that you know. You want to watch a documentary? Here are all these documentaries. You want to watch something? You know, like, but Disney can't do that because Disney has to maintain family friendly. They can't just green light everything, whereas Netflix can, yeah. <laughs> essentially. So for Disney, you've already boxed yourself in with like, what does the brand demand? So you're not going to have like R-rated or even like hard PG-13 movies on Disney+. Plus. Furthermore, the better way to keep your audience then is not through movies, which have to be marketed to certain segments of the audience, but through television. Like if I were Disney right now, I'd be putting way more backing and maybe they are behind the scenes, who knows, into something like Percy Jackson, which has like yeah. a, a built-in fan base. Like the movies that were made of Percy Jackson were not well-received, um, even by the author who is now involved with this new TV series. But like a Percy Jackson TV series is like gonna like could be the Disney plus equivalent of like a game of Thrones where it's like, it keeps people watching from week to week and they want, they, 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 and it's, and it's on, and it's a series of books. It can keep going. Yeah. And I think, you know, Mandalorian is inarguably their, their most successful thing on that entire streaming service. And I think WandaVision was very successful. 
they have shows like high school musical the musical the series that i think is super popular and frankly there's just a lot of like family programming on there that mm-hmm. i don't know much about that could be very popular for them there but i think you're right i think and that there's a reason that netflix started with original series instead of movies um because that's that's what keeps people subscribed because they're like well i can't bail because i want to see the next season of ozark Right. And not only can I not bail, but my time spent in front of this will be in front of the TV will be 10 hours or 13 hours instead of Mm -hmm. two hours. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I don't know. It's, it's weird because Disney up until this pandemic was the surefire hit factory. Like every Marvel movie grossed a billion dollars. And, or I think, I think we were at that point. We had reached the point where like even Captain Marvel could just come on the scene and gross a billion worldwide. Yeah. And there's nothing that can replace that in the streaming or home video realm. Like there's nothing that can replace the, the cultural footprint and then just the amount of money you can make. Right. And, and that, that, and that cultural footprint is vital to Disney. Like we can talk about, Oh, how much does a movie make at a box office? But when you, the way Disney works is through all these ancillary revenue streams. So it doesn't really matter if like, a you know, when, when a film is making X amount of money at the box office, what that is telling Disney is, Oh good. We can now sell toys and bed sheets and clothes and, maybe build a theme park ride. And like, you're trying to find all the different ways it can be sold. But when you bury that behind streaming, who knows how popular something is and what kind of footprint it's going to have. And that makes me wonder about Luca, which is this, you know, highly anticipated Pixar movie that they're just sending straight to Disney plus no premiere access. Um, And no doubt they already had deals and licensing and marketing and all that stuff in place. But like how it'll be curious to see how they gauge like, what kind of parks presence does Luca get now? Cause like how popular was it? How much they can't tell how much money it made cause it's just going straight to streaming but they do have the numbers of like how many people watched it. But does that, is that comparable to what a theatrical release would have done? Right, exactly. Like what, what, I mean, and it's sort of wild to think about like we'll basically go two years without Pixar movies in theaters when you think about it because yeah. Onward was barely in theaters and then the pandemic hit so they just shuffled it straight to Disney Plus Soul went to Disney Plus and now Luca's going to Disney Plus mm-hmm. and I mean I don't think I think the Pixar brand is strong is strong enough that it will you know if they if they go back to theatrical and I imagine they will people will turn out because the Pixar brand is that strong yeah but at the same by the same token you notice that like the Marvel brand is very strong too. And they're not just being like, well, we're just going to dump Black Widow straight on Disney plus. They want to try to, in a weird way, the premier access is to sort of boost its prestige to say, we believe in this enough that we believe that people will pay $30 to see this on a true. And and keep in mind, the $30 is always in addition to your subscription. You're paying (laughs) now they, they, they raised it by a dollar, but you know, like you're paying eight bucks a month, plus $30 for a movie that will be on Disney plus for all subscribers in like three to six months. Yeah. Yeah. You're just paying so you can watch it early. Right. Again, that, for accessibility reasons, that's fantastic. But for, for other consumers who would go to a theater or something, I don't, I don't right. know. I don't know that I would want to do that. And again, like on Mulan, you can make the argument like, well, theaters aren't open. We have to sell yeah. a movie. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's just put it out there. But by July 9th, you know, the landscape could be very different. Um, to get back to our original point, you know, I do think, and I, as you noted, the days of the 90 day release window are gone. Yeah. But I don't think that that necessarily means 
the theatrical experience is gone. I think the biggest question mark is not for the blockbusters, but for the smaller films. You know, what happens to uh, a film like Nomadland yeah. in, in normal times now? Or, you know, focus features, will they, I mean, if they're saying 17 days theatrical, at least it's something, but, you know, will, you know, who, who is going to keep pushing it out there? And I think it really depends from distributor to distributor. I can see, I'm trying to think like maybe someone like IFC films just kind of like shrugs and is like, well, we're, we do PVOD now, you know, but like a 24 is all about the a 24 brand. Yeah. And like, it's, I can't see a scenario where they're like the green Knight is going straight to VOD. Like, because people talk about a 24 films, they're small, they're indie, but like people talked about Midsommar, like they, they talked about that. And in a way that they probably wouldn't have if it had gone straight to VOD. Well, and I think you need that cultural footprint. I think we're seeing it right now with the Best Picture nominees. Like I said, awareness is at an all-time low, even though all the Best Picture nominees are currently available to either stream or rent PPOD. Uh, and we talked about this in the in the Best Picture podcast, but you know, in previous years, a movie like Nomadland would be in limited release and would be slowly rolling out. And on the day the Oscar nominations are announced, it usually goes to a much wider theatrical rollout. And then people I start talking to are like, oh yeah, I'm going to go see Nomadland this weekend, or I saw it last weekend and I liked it or I didn't like it, but like, that's the way to see it. And if I want to be in on the conversation of this movie that everyone's talking about, I have to go and see it. Whereas I think we're seeing if it's just available to stream, people are, are less likely to, it's the whole reason why, you know, when you had Netflix DVDs, it's why, uh, you know, a movie like The Pianist would just sit there and sit there and sit there because you you had it. It was always available to just put in your Blu-ray player, but you're like, oh, I don't feel like it today. Yeah, yeah, as we said on a previous episode, there's no urgency here. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's, and that's where I'm curious about a movie like The Suicide Squad once we get to August. Those kinds of blockbusters thrive on that cultural conversation or don't like a movie like Bloodshot was not a hit and no one was really talking about it. Although I don't know, the Collider staff was talking about it. <laughs> it's amazing what we talk about in our Slack. You people, you people have no idea the, the, the weird films that get, we have. We have an emoji just for unhinged. <laughs> yes, we do. We do. But yeah, I don't. I, and I was talking about this with my wife the other day. Is is just like that conversation is gone without theaters. Like mm-hmm. the the whole notion of like oh, I caught that movie last weekend and it's been out for two or three weeks now. And now I, I finally saw it and I could talk about it. Um, there's just, there's something lost there with everything going to streaming. And so that's what I'm curious about is when people have the choice of I can watch it on YouTube Max or I can see it in the theater. Number one, which do most people choose? And number two, when you split it that way, does that then cut the cultural conversation in half again? Or, or will it linger for the films that you know, are worth continuing to discuss. Because some aren't, you know, tons of movies come out in theaters that are like, yeah, it was fine. I don't need to think about that movie ever again. Right, yeah. At, at some level, the film itself has to do the lifting. And if a film itself is not interesting, it doesn't matter if it's going to be in theaters or on streaming or like what have you. The The concern, I suppose, is that what happens if there's a good film and it goes straight to streaming, does it make a sound? And I think this year's Best Picture crop says, no, not really. Yeah. That's, a, that's exactly what happened. If you put a great film on streaming, don't put it in theaters. Will people watch it? Will people talk about it? Depends on the film, I would argue, because Nomadland is a, is a bit of a tough sell. But... Right, and, and I mean, look, I mean, Netflix was able to get Roma into limited theatrical release. <laughs> and nobody saw Roma. And nobody saw it. Yeah. 
Just like so, nobody's up. Mank is the least uh, of that study I was talking about. That is the least awareness is for Mank. No one knows what Mank is. <laughs> <laughs> really? The yes. a film that's in black and white about <laughs> politics of the <laughs> politics, but also like the authorship of Citizen Kane. Yeah, not even about the making of Citizen Kane. The authorship of Citizen. Kane. The authorship. Before they made it. <laughs> the guy who wrote it. People love stories about authorship. <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, and the thing is, Netflix will be like, yeah, we'll back a David Venture film all day yeah. because it's not in our business model. It doesn't matter if, you know, a film like Mank would flop in theaters, but on Netflix, it's a prestige title. And man, that's a fucking investment. Look what he's going to do next. An assassin movie with Michael Fassbender. That's going to be in the Netflix top 10 for like all eternity. Right. So, so yeah, they're, they're, just, yeah, they're I mean, like, I'm betting on you as a filmmaker, please stay with us. We will give you money to do things. Yeah. And keep in mind that David Fincher has been like with Netflix for a while. I mean, he directed mm-hmm. the first two episodes of house of cards. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he's, they, 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 they have a very keen awareness of each other, Netflix mm-hmm. and Fincher. For sure. But um, yeah, I just, you know, I, I guess, you know, if you're like, well, what's the answer to like, what happens when movies come back, I guess, and maybe I'll look foolish, I think first off, there will be a surge when, mm-hmm. as people get vaccinated and want to resume lives of normalcy, they're going to head back to theaters. And I think in 2021, you're going to maybe see some some real box some box office records falling. I don't know if the big ones are going to fall, but I definitely can see, you know, the biggest July ever or the biggest November ever. Mm-hmm. Something you know where people are just flooding in, into the multiplex to see F9 and you know this Christmas there will be a new Spider-Man movie a new live action spider movie at Christmas yeah that's gonna be so it's gonna be massive and you know and I think like in the heights which is gonna be on HBO Max I could see people like going to see it in a theater and then or watching it on HBO Max and saying I want to see this in a theater now going out right you know and and again we don't know like maybe Warner Brothers decides to start flexing its schedule like they had the 2021 plan because they didn't know how things were going to be distributed or how people would come back. But by the time Dune rolls around, maybe Dune is theatrical only. Who knows? Yeah. I would hope so. I think that's what the filmmakers want for that one. Yeah. But I do feel like there's going to be a surge. What happens after that surge is a little more uncertain. And I think sort of, I, I you know, maybe I'm being Pollyanna about it. I still bet on theaters. And the reason I bet on theaters is, you know, we had, we, we got to live the world of streaming. We got, to, we got it. We got, ooh, what if all movies just came straight to my home? Well, you got it. You got it for a year <laughs> and it sucks. Yeah. And it's not good enough. It's not good enough in terms of cultural conversation. It's not good enough in terms of the experience. That's not to say that like, don't watch movies at home. I think there's a place for it. I think, you know, streaming has been great for documentaries, but like no one goes to do a documentary to be like, yeah, the crowd's going to go wild at WeWork, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like it's, they're going to lose their shit at the new Herzog, <laughs> you know, like it makes sense, you know, to put those films on streaming where you can sort of pick over them at your own leisure. But I definitely feel like, you know, blockbusters and I think even smaller films like what A24 is doing, like I can see the Green Knight being huge yeah, uh, under the right circumstances. And you know, so I feel like has has the, the window has changed, the, the theatrical experience has changed. I think you'll get more blockbusters and I think, you know, fewer, you know, low budget films. I mean, you know, if you thought the mid budget feature was an endangered species before, hold on to your seats. <laughs> yeah. 
but I definitely exclusively on Netflix. Although, and here's the other big thing I wanted to mm. discuss. Sure. Now that the theatrical window is broken, now that mm. HBO Max movies are in theaters, that means Netflix movies, they've got to be in theaters now because that that whole fight over right. It was all predicated on like, well, you can't. Your movies are going to leave us too soon. Yeah. Well, you know, why would I guess the question is is why would you know, Cinemark make a deal with Universal, but not uh, not Netflix at this yeah. point. And I could see them being petty. I could see them being one or two holdouts in terms of the big theater chains. But I do think we will be able to widely see some big Netflix movies. I do feel like, and I don't want to get too in the weeds on this because even this is an area where I just need to do more homework. But something that should be noted is that the Paramount decrees were basically abolished in the last yeah. year. And that happened around the same time as this whole, you know, pandemic and the window shortening. And like, what does that mean? You know, does it mean the return of block booking? Does it mean, you know, Disney saying you have to take our bad movies if you want to get, you know, the return, you get the Marvel movies? I don't know. I don't know what that means. Um, and I think that is a little, that I don't have an answer for at this time, but I do definitely, I definitely, I mean, studios are certainly thinking about it. Theatrical chains are thinking about it, but we don't know what it looks like in practice yet. Yeah. I think that'll be interesting. Although I, you know, again, now that that thing has fallen, it's not like they're going to have to buy theaters in order to show their movies in theaters. No, no. It's just, there were two sides of it. One is like, you know, can't see, I, you know, the more reading I did on it, it wasn't so much like, Ooh, Netflix will have, can buy theaters now to show their own movies. Like maybe, you know, the, 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 there's the creation of the Disney Plex, but I just, I don't, I don't think that they want to get into the theater owning business as much as the other half of it, which is block booking, which is, you have to take our movies or you don't get the other, the, mm -hmm. the ones you really want. Yeah. Um, and we'll have it's to see possible. wait to see how that plays out. Yeah. And that could suck for toys. I mean, I could see oh, a scenario. I could see a scenario in which movie, like films like A24 movies, like the Green Knight, which are like, you have to go to a theater to see this. Could that could be a great marketing boon of like, you can only see this in a theater. You can't see it on your TV yet. Um, I could also see it backfiring. Like, if people are lazy and are used to watching everything on their television, they could be like, eh, I don't want to take a gamble on something I don't know about. Right. I mean, and the other, I, I'll just to return to the block booking real quick, something that should be considered is like, you know, back in the old days before streaming, there'd be like, yeah, you have to, you're going to take all of our movies if you want to get the good ones. Well, excuse me. Disney isn't going to be like, you have to take all of our, our movies if you want to take our Marvel now, because those movies are just are meant for Disney plus. So there's an outlet now that wasn't there before. So this the landscape is different, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not going to go back to, you know, a pre paramount decrees world because that's just not the world we live in. Yeah. No, I don't think so either. Um, so yeah, I hope uh, this was somewhat, this was kind of an in the weeds <laughs> episode when you think about it, but uh, you know, but we're still curious. in, I mean, movies are coming back and it is an entirely different world. It's not, it's not exactly um, as it used to be. No, it's not. And I think we're all sort of like wondering what will that world look like? But I also feel, I, I feel oddly hopeful, I guess, which is maybe Jim just being foolish. Um, but uh I don't know. I've, I mean, li literally two weeks after I get my second dose, I'm back at the movies. I mean, I am just thrilled to be able to <laughs> do this. Like the, just the thought of seeing in the Heights in a packed theater with people 
clapping after musical numbers like gives me chills yeah so i i have had my second shot i'm counting down the days and i maybe i'll see moral combat in theaters well bully for you <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if that will be my first one but i definitely have a quiet place part two earmarked on my calendar as a really fun theatrical yeah. experience something i'm looking forward to seeing uh all right well with that uh well we don't have any new reader hot takes so just for those who don't know, if you have a hot take and you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes on the podcast app and tell us why you like the show. But more importantly, give us your hottest movie or TV related take. We will read it on air and engage with it. Uh, but nothing new this week. So we'll move on to recently watched. Adam, what have you seen lately? Um, so I've been kind of on and off the, the true crime docuseries trend uh, over the last year. I mean, as we were talking about, I think streaming has been a really great outlet for documentaries. I think a lot more people have been able to see documentaries, but I do think some uh, streaming services and networks have taken advantage of that and been like, well, here's nine hours of a documentary when you only need about three or four. Um, so uh, Murder Among the Mormons appealed to me on Netflix uh, as it's only three episodes. Uh, each one of them is a little bit less than an hour in length. Uh, and it's co-directed by Jared Hess, which interested me. Um, who directed Napoleon Dynamite? Uh, and Joe Berlinger is is an executive producer on it, who's uh, pretty well renowned in the documentary world. Um, I don't want to like spoil it, uh, but it is a true story um, about it's set in Utah in the world of the Latter Day Saints uh, in the eighties. Mormons, 80s. really? In Mormons Utah? In Utah. Um, and it's, you know, it's about a murder among the Mormons. But also um, there are these documents that arise, uh, something called the White Salamander Letter that came out that was discovered and found. It was this ancient document that really put into question the beliefs of the Mormons because it contradicted um, the original text from Joseph Smith in, in the Book of Mormon. So there's some really fascinating things to do with religion in it, um, but also just a really interesting character study of these people and I also just really appreciated that this isn't, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but um, uh, I'll be gone in the dark, I think kind of ruined true crime for me in a good way. And that like that series was all about the victims. It did not glorify the crimes. It did not glorify the murders. It did not linger on crime scene photos. I watched that Night Stalker docuseries and it was just like, look at all of these crime scene photos. Let us linger on them. Let us play like terrifying music over them. Look at all the blood and not look at all of these things like intercut with interviews with like loved ones of these family members who were murdered. And it just felt exploitative. And it felt like, like, look how extreme we are. And like, oh my God, isn't this disturbing and gross. And I just got really tired of it um, and really kind of swore off a lot of those. So Murder Among the Mormons, thankfully, uh, was not that kind of docuseries. It, and I think it, it was more about the, the human interplay and the interactions that happened within these events. Um, and yes, uh, a couple of people lost their lives and it's really tragic, but it doesn't linger on that. Um, to that end, I will also recommend This is a Robbery, which is another Netflix docuseries, very short. I think it's three or four episodes, but it's about the world's biggest art heist. Uh, so no crime scene photos, no murders in that docuseries. It's an unsolved crime, so it like goes down a bunch of rabbit holes, but it's it, that one is very fun and interesting. So I, I would recommend both, Murder Among the Mormons and This is a Robbery. I, I enjoyed both of them, and I, I am very tired of docuseries that linger on gross crime scene stuff and Thankfully, these have none of that. Fair enough. Uh, so for me, I woke up 
one day this weekend, I was like, you know what I haven't watched in a while? And I, I want to watch and show my wife who hasn't seen it is Inside Man, uh, Spike Lee's 2006 crime thriller. Uh, the plot of the film is that there is a bank robbery that turns into a hostage situation. And so a negotiator played by Denzel Washington is called in to try to defuse the situation and get the bank robbers uh, led by Clive Owen what they want. But then <clears throat> as, the, as it goes on, you discover that the heist is not all it appears to be. And it's just, in retrospect, two things sort of become clear. Um, and I've, I was a fan of this film when it was released, but the first is that, and something I just had just not recalled, but makes more sense in retrospect is how it's still very much in a post nine 11 mold. Um, especially with its sort of deference to cops in as much as Spike Lee will ever defer to cops, <laughs> you know, I mean, he's willing to acknowledge, you know, that there are, there are bad actors there, are, you know, there's racism, but it's still like, when you watch like the cops, like they're very efficient, they're on the scene. There's, it's still sort of swept under that, like, you know, do not question the NYPD. It's sort of that goodwill that carried forward because of the loss on 9-11. And it's sort of interesting to sort of see Spike Lee pursue that um, and sort of then, you know, look where we are now and how people's feelings about the police have changed and, and so forth. Um, the other thing about the film is just, it's a flex, you know, it's a flex from Spike <laughs> Lee. It is because Spike Lee is like, oh, he's the guy that makes the race movies, you know, like he, he, you know, do the right thing, bamboozle, you know, like he's, he's, he's the guy that, you know, and, and all of the films are like, are just, they deal with race and like you, and you know, Spike Lee is this aggressive person, you know, Malcolm X, you know, if you, you're going to make a film about race and it's going to be really make big demands of its audience. And he's like, you know what, though, I can make a crime thriller if I want it. It's super fun. And I can just do that. And he can like, that's the thing. Like Inside Man is a very accessible Spike Lee film. Like if you're like, I don't know if I want to see a Spike Lee film Inside Man. And the thing is, is that it's not an anonymous film. It's not like, oh, anyone could have made this. It is a Spike Lee movie, mm -hmm. uh, a Spike Lee joint as he calls them. Um, but he, I said in the whitest voice ever, a spikely <laughs> joint, if you will, sir. Uh, but it's really good. It's super entertaining. Um, and uh, yeah, it holds up very well. It's currently, I own the DVD, but if you want to, if you have Peacock, I think it's on, I believe it's on Peacock right now. Um, but yeah, Inside Man, worth your time. It's tremendously entertaining uh, and absolutely Ziflex. But I will also say the less said about Old Boy, the better. I never even saw, I, yeah, I never saw his old boy because I'm like, what's the point? It's it was and really that's no disrespect pointless. to him. It was just yeah. like the original is just so good. It just really felt kind of pointless. Whereas Inside Man was a flex. I, I don't I don't necessarily know what he was trying to do with Old Boy because it was it did feel a little anonymous and it also did feel very commercial driven. Mm -hmm. So I don't yeah. know. Mm. That was a weird one. Uh, okay. Well, thank you all so much for listening. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should. First off, you can just find this podcast wherever now, where we're we're now with the good folks at Megaphone, and that means you can get our podcast on whatever app you get podcasts from. So whether it's Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever, what have you, uh, you can get your podcast there. Uh, if you want to keep up with us and what we're saying about this podcast and announcements about it, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week.